Welcome, everyone, to this edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I have a guest this week, not Frank, but it's Adam Korlick. He's a YouTuber who's been doing it since 2009, has over 93,000 subscribers. He's big into video game commentary. He does things such as pickup videos, video game generation recaps, and even has a podcast. Look at that. Welcome, Adam. How's it going? I'm good, man. Thanks for having me here. It's great to finally be on the show. We, finally? We well, we, you and I have talked about this for a while, actually. That long? What was, yeah, it, what you, was a while? Um, we've, you first brought it up at AVGC last year. Well, last year I did not have this podcast going at the time. Last year I just had the CU podcast. True, but you mentioned just being on your podcast. Oh, okay. Well, here you go. As a generic <laughs> term. But yeah, either way, here it's good to be here. <laughs> You're a YouTuber that, I guess this is this is a positive, is that I didn't hear about you from really one video or one thing that stood out. It was sort of, I guess, underground or organic where I just saw you pop up slowly but surely here and there, which I guess goes to your credit of, of you, I guess, finding your niche and hitting your stride and keep keep plugging away at it. You know, you've, been doing, you've been doing this for eight years, nearly as long yeah. as I have. So why don't you tell me how you got started on YouTube? What got you into it? Uh, so basically I went to Columbia College Chicago for film school purposes and – I was making a lot, directing a lot of short films at the time, and I thought, okay, I need a place to kind of host this, and that YouTube made a lot of sense, but I was like, well, nobody's going to see these because there's nobody following me, so I need to make some other content. I was like, well, what else do I know? I know video games. So I would make a lot of video game videos, specifically about the Dreamcast, and then that started building up a base, and then I started putting out the short films, and then it got to a point where I was like, well, the hell with the short films, I'll just make video game videos, and uh, so that's what I'm doing now across four different channels now. Four channels. What are your four different channels? Uh, so I, I should say I work on a total of four channels. I have the one you mentioned, which is just my name, Adam Korlick. I also work on another channel called Game Society, formerly known as Game Society Pimps, um, which that one is uh, about your size. That's like just shy of 500,000 subs. Um, that's bigger than mine. <laughs> oh, it is. Oh, that's right. You're, oh, I'm sorry. What, what are you at? I'm like 225 about. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I, 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 for some reason, I thought you were more at, like at five hundred thousand. Um, you'll you'll definitely get there. Um, and then I also do on this other one uh, another one called Blame Society Films. I work with them on a show called Beer and Board Games. They're best known for a show called Chad Vader that was like really popular. Like, oh, okay, ten- yeah, everyone's heard of that. Okay, so I didn't know yeah. you're involved with that. Not, yeah, I'm not only involved with in it. I'm I was crew. I'm in the show. Um, I'm in episodes of that show. My buddy is the voice of Darth Vader for Lucasfilm now. I mean, other than James Earl Jones doing like Rogue One when they do toys or video games, like my buddy is the guy doing that. Um, and then I also work on Machinima, and of course Machinima is like its own thing. You know, it's like what they're like 13 million subs or something like that. They're insane. But um, yeah, I, I work across all four of those. What do you do for Machinima? Um, so they have, uh, like, uh, a, we do a series for them that's basically celebrity impression comedy. Uh, it was known as the Christopher Walken through. Basically, the idea was, you know, a guy would voice Christopher Walken and play a video game, and it would seem like Christopher Walken's the one playing the video game. And then we started branching into other celebrities like uh, Morgan Freeman, President Obama, President Trump, uh, you know, and there's so many others that we would do because we have a professional voice impersonator actor who does that. And so we do those for the main channel a lot. But we've also done various projects for them that we filmed like on the Warner Brothers lot. And uh, just just the other day I got back from, you know, one of their uh, parties up in Seattle at PAX West. Like, so, yeah, I have a lot of friends over at Machinima, too. So you are employed by them for that specific channel for those videos. I, I wouldn't call it employment. They would call it con- contract work, but if you want to call it that, yeah. But it's it's but, steady, it's regular. You yeah. help put out content on their channel. 
That is correct. I, uh, I, ha- I have heard of the wall. I mean, now you say it, I must have listened to one of the celebrity gaming ones at some point. That does sound familiar. Uh, yeah, like Christopher Walken playing games. That does sound familiar. I probably have seen one years back. Yeah, uh, and so, obviously Chad Vader's what was one of the biggest sort of early sort of mm-hmm. YouTuber, you know, YouTube videos people people got into. Did yeah. that end at some point? That that, that uh, uh, finally yeah. End? There was a fourth season um, that came out a couple of years ago, and that's where it has stopped. There's always the possibility of some sort of return. That's certainly not my department. My buddy Aaron and my buddy Matt. That would be their decision. But um, there's you know they have interest in doing it at some point potentially. But yes, there is a current end to the series. So how do you have time to bounce between four different channels? Oh, dude, it's it's impossible. Um, so I work seven days a week on YouTube content. When it comes to my personal channel, whenever I'm home, I typically have to like do an entire schedule for what my video catalog is going to be for the next couple of months and produce as many as I possibly can in that time frame because often I'm sent off to different places to do things for the other channels. Uh, I end up wearing a lot of different hats, like certain places I have to go to represent myself, such as ABGC, where you and I met, and where we will be going soon very well. Uh, uh, I have to represent myself. And then things like PAX West, which I just came from today, at the time we record this, I'm there to represent Game Society. And then other things I have to sometimes be part of, like representing Machinima, and then sometimes I go to different conventions and represent uh, Blame Society. So it's it's a lot of it's good to have other people on your team. So, but my channel, whenever I have to deal with it personally, it's just kind of okay. I'm home for a bit. Let's just make as much content as I possibly can. And the other ones, often I have to bring content to the editing team and then let them deal with it. So how how long has YouTube been your full time uh, gig at this point? <laughs> I don't know if you'd call it my full-time gig, but, I mean, I started doing it in 2009, and I guess maybe it was around 2011 that I thought, okay, let's try to do this as an actual career, or at least let's do this as a job. And then it just kind of morphed into a career as more opportunities came about. So it was sort of a gradual sort of transition as you got more and more work, more and more channels you're working on. What were you doing before uh, YouTube? Uh, I was in college. Uh, like I just went through four years of college and then before that four years of high school and so on and so forth. Like I, I really didn't do anything in between there. It was pretty much just jump straight in. Cause like I said earlier, my goal was to do film production and the logical place to start was YouTube just to try and build an audience. What did you enjoy about, uh, filming? Like what sort of, uh, short films did you, did you have a specialty? Was it comedy drama? What were you into? Um, so I kind of tried my hand at everything. I did a few comedies that do appear on my channel. They're kind of buried in the bowels of it. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, like they show up and you'll see my film degree every once in a while comes back um, for a cameo. But like uh, I, I did some horror films. I did an action film, some of which have aired and have been on the channel. Others have not. Um, but the thing I'm most proud of that isn't exactly my film, but I kind of take credit for it, was I created Jurassic Park 1.5, and I created Back to the Future 4 and 5. And the way that worked is Telltale Studios, if, if you've heard of them, they made the, sure. they got really big with like the Walking Dead game. But before they made that, they made Jurassic Park the game, they made Back to the Future the game, which was basically interactive cinema. So I took their games, I captured all the footage, and I edited them into like full-on feature films like well beyond just i'm gonna glue the cutscenes together like there was a lot of work that went into that to the point where that was where my film degree kind of popped up again it was like hey remember how to do story structure this is how you should organize this and uh i I was i actually got a letter from telltale after back to the future 4 which is the only one of those three that got any kind of traction um i got a letter from telltale basically thanking me for doing that because they thought that was amazing 
Um, so, like I said, the, the film degree still pops up. There's still that part of me who wants to, to make that kind of content. It's just that uh, given current time constraints, like, you know, when the hell would I do that? So you took all the cutscenes and all the story elements. Did you re-edit? Did you add a, a score to the background, little effects here and there? How did you, I guess, make it pop out? I literally did all of those things. Um, so the gameplay is, is there's a lot of cutscenes in it, but there's a lot of fetch questing. You know, there's a lot of like, hey, let's go from this spot to go figure out the puzzle to come right back to this spot. And you have to get, you can't do that in a movie. That's not interesting. So you have to find creative ways to compile all the scenes to get all the essential information out and make sure that it still flows as an actual film scene. Um, as for scores, you can't use the actual original Back to the Future music because that's, you know, YouTube, I'm sure you know this well, YouTube content. I bots would be all over that so you have to actually go after other types of music that sound very similar which was a pain in the ass but fortunately telltale actually created a lot of those assets themselves and they don't care if you use it um so yeah i did a lot of stuff like that and uh i was i'm very proud of that project and to youtube's credit every once in a while they throw back to the future 4 back into the algorithm and uh, I'm, I, I'm happy about that because at least people get to see it. Like, I never needed to make, like, I didn't need it to get, like, a bazillion views. I don't need it to make tons of money or anything like that. It's just one of those things where I just want fans of it to be able to see it. And so I'm glad it exists there. So the life of a YouTuber, you're saying, and all well, these online content creator, you said you're working seven days a week. Yeah. Um, so almost no time off. I mean, I'm getting you right now. I'm talking to you while you're in a hotel room. That is correct. Um, you're, you just did PAX West, or you're going out to what? You're, you're seeing a preview of a game. Is that correct? Is that what you're yeah. doing tomorrow? Uh, so li- yeah, so here's here's my schedule as of right now. Um, on August 31st, I flew out to Seattle, Washington for PAX West for media purposes. And I was there until today, which is September 5th. I flew straight from there down here to San Francisco, and I'm now going to be in San Francisco for three days to cover a totally different media event. Then, after that's over, on the 7th, I fly home for one night in which I have to edit all the stuff I shot at PAX West, and then I fly out to see you the next day for three days at a convention. And that's just within the next, like, week and a half. Uh, At some point, do you feel like, I can't do this any longer, I need a break? Do you take vacations at all? Do you get burnt out? How do you deal with, um, with the sort of rush you're going through? Uh, a lot of Starbucks double shot espressos as I sit here and drink one. I literally <laughs> bought I literally bought four right before this podcast. Oh my god, I'm gonna get you hopped up for this. Yeah, this I, is well, fantastic. At this point it's just basic fuel, man. <laughs> Um, so what's the what's the event you're doing tomorrow? If you if you may, uh, uh, it is a, yeah yeah it's a preview event for South Park: The Fractured But Whole. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, so it'll be cool. It's a, it's actually the third time I will have played it, uh, but it's. I'm sure there's going to be more content. I'll, I'll know tomorrow. Um, and then I can, you know, basically get early access to the game and make footage out of it. And that's when we'll do one of those like celebrity impression type of videos usually. And that'll appear over on my other channel, uh, game society. Okay. So that's for game society, not your personal channel. Correct. Okay. See, it, like I said, I wear multiple hats. So at some events, I'm me, some events, I'm a different guy. You know what I mean? Like you, it's people know you for different things. So how many how many people is involved uh, with Game Society Pimps? What, how big is that team? Um, technically, it's three people, but there's the actor who I keep mentioning is not actually part of it necessarily. He's more like an actor, but at the same time, we kind of consider him part of it. So I, officially three, unofficially four. Uh, and then we have an extra editor who lives out in Pittsburgh. Uh, who his name is Lucas, and every once in a while he gets involved. So you can go as high as five and as low as three. It's it's debatable though. 
and you have one person that oversees the, the general management, even though you have multiple people working on it at the same time. I would say that uh, everyone has to wear multiple hats. So we have two guys that edit, two guys that manage. Um, and I, I like one guy, he does like half editing and half management. I do like full management. And we have one guy who does all editing. And then we have a guest editor and then we have a voice actor. And at the same time, two of them have to do most of the acting. I have to do some acting every once in a while for certain shows like Disneyland Adventures because I voice Stitch and I voice Mickey Mouse. And so they appear in these shows that are very vulgar and it would destroy your childhood if you ever heard them. Um, <laughs> We, we did this series on a game called um, Disneyland Adventures for the Xbox 360, which is a Kinect game. So you know all right off the bat, it, it really doesn't work. Um, and you basically, the whole premise was it was a kid's game where you just kind of wander around Disneyland and uh, you have to go on all the rides but try to use the Kinect for them. And it doesn't work at all. And so the whole series was basically me playing as Stitch and Mickey Mouse making my friend go through unbelievable hell like he's a slave trapped at the park and he has to complete all these objectives and the series has done really well and like to the point where people just absolutely love it but it, it kind of ran out of content and now for whatever reason i don't know if you saw this at uh, gamescom microsoft announced they're basically like re-releasing it in like xbox one high definition remastered edition and we're like of all the things that you could have re-released. You chose a Connect game. <laughs> and so, yeah, so <laughs> Mickey Mouse will make his friends suffer once more. It'll be uh it'll be wonderful. So what what is what is Disney going to Well, that's actually yeah, Disney own everything, right? They own Mickey Mouse, they own Star Wars, they own uh, Marvel. What are they going to pick you up as a side uh, actor then for for that voice? Uh, I don't think that I, I think if they ever listened to mine, they would never accept me. My audition tape would be nothing but Mickey saying horrible things about the Disney Corporation and like, <laughs> the things I don't actually feel, but that my sure. my Mickey Mouse is evil, man. He is evil. It, it's Same like, with it's like Stitch. The, 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 the Great South Park version of Mickey Mouse where he just beats the hell everyone with a baseball bat. Yeah, probably, I get compared to that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> probably one of the finest moments on South Park. Mickey Mouse finally shows up and he's like a gangster just destroying people. You know, I'm I'm surprised Disney didn't come after Matt and Trey for that. That was that was just one of the most hysterical things. Or maybe they had a nice sense of humor about it. Um, so so you're into some retro game stuff. Yeah, I a little bit. On your channel. <laughs> you, you do you do video game pickups. You've done these very interesting freeform generation recap videos. Tell me about those first. How did you think of uh, of those? Okay, so yeah, that's what you're referencing as these videos where I basically just talk about any console and I talk about its history and I talk about its impact and stuff and my experience with it. Really where that started was when the seventh generation ended and the, like the, the, the eighth generation started where the Wii U, the Xbox One and PS4 had finally come out. I thought it would just be kind of interesting to just talk about the seventh gen consoles, the 360, the Wii, the PS3 and just do exactly that. Just talk a little bit about it and I never really thought it would go anywhere. And at the end of it Everyone was like, you got to do this more. You got to do, I want to see all the six gen consoles, do all those. And I thought, okay, I have them. I guess I could do that. So I did it. And then at the end of it, people kept saying, do the fifth gen, do the fifth gen. So I thought, all right, I'll do that. And it just kept going that way until I've, I'm all, I'm already done with the second generation. And a lot of people say like, can you do the first gen? And I'm like, it's all Pong clones. Like there's really nothing to do. <laughs> the other Odyssey than, like, one. <laughs> exactly. That's the only interesting one. Um, and I don't own it, so I can't do it. Uh, like I could do one video that has all the Pong clones I own in one video and be like, guys, this one game was popular. So every console company made it. But like, aside from that, there's not much to do. 
There's also handhelds, which I've never tackled, but um, it's just it, at this point now, it's more about the time. Because when I was doing most of those videos, I didn't I didn't get shipped off to different cities and different countries for different things all the time. Now I do. So like logistically speaking, I have to actually plan ahead for something like that, and I, I'm never really sure when that's going to work. So yeah. you had so so you had the background in, in retro games going way back to in order to even uh, talk about some esoteric consoles. Yes. Um, so you were you were following this for for years before it blew up and got popular. Retro yeah, games. yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I like I said, I'm kind of OG with YouTube, much like yourself. Like 2009 makes us original gangster, by the way, which is kind of creepy. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I, I was, I'm of the same. Philosophy. I've I just really liked retro gaming. I love following it. Love learning about it. And you know, I was actually watching a lot of other YouTubers and their their content. I thought this is you know kind of exciting. It would be kind of cool to do something like this. And then when I eventually realized I should be making videos for reasons previously stated, that's just kind of where I went with it. Um, yeah, it, it was always a passion of mine. I've, I've always had like a soft spot for. Uh, really the, the failed consoles, the ones that we always perceive as failures, the ones that don't get a whole lot of coverage. I mean, there's only so many times you can watch some guy's review of the PS1 before you're like, I don't think there's much else I don't know about this thing. But when somebody's like, today, guys, we're going to talk about the Amiga CD32, you're like, all right, I don't know shit about that. Let's let's talk. What is that? I never you know? turned mine on, I don't think. Mine's sitting in the game. You have one? <laughs> yeah, I have one. Oh, uh, the, they can, the I, European I or Canadian? Uh, it must be a Canadian one. I know they weren't released in the U.S., so it must. Yeah. Be, I, I, I bought it in the U.S. at a actually Super Collector. It's funny. Super Collector Steve Lynn gave me one at Classic Game Fest uh, 2012 in Vegas, but he didn't have a controller, right? And the controllers are really hard to find. They're expensive, and so he gave that to me. And then I remember I picked up some games somewhere, like ten or twelve games. And then, so I didn't have a controller for like two or three years later. Then he gave me a controller, or gave me a good deal on a controller. Way later, so it took me like four years to piece together my Amiga CD32, <laughs> and I don't think I've still played it. It's just one of those things where, um, you know, you uh, if you collect retro games and consoles, so you know that sometimes you just don't have time to, to go through this stuff. You just don't. Uh, you yeah, just sort of compile it. And I wish I wish there was a time where I can just sit down and say, okay, let me actually turn on my my Atari, you know, 800. Finally, let me play my Amiga CD32. And finally, just go go to it, and I guess eventually I will, uh, you know. But I haven't done it yet. I can relate to that so hard; it's it's scary. Like, trust me, I, I get that. Like, when am I going to sit down and play my Apple Pippin? Realistically, never. Well, that's um, what I don't have. I don't have the Pippin. <laughs> it's trade. <laughs> there's really not much of a reason to play it. Um, <laughs> my, my my favorite game on it is Power Rangers Zio, just because I can't believe it exists. Um, but everyone says Marathon. There's a port of Marathon that's pretty good, but like aside from that, there's really nothing on there. And I'm just like, yeah, but it's cool. It exists. Apple made a console, and it's technically the most powerful fifth-generation console. It, it actually puts to shame the N64, but nobody knows that. Because why would you know that? Why would you even know it exists? And it's just, I find stuff like that fascinating. That's where I'm, I'm training towards in my game collecting uh, life. My my the twilight of my retro collecting career is just weird esoteric stuff. I can't say what I just picked up recently because it's going to appear in a future video. But I just mm -hmm. picked up something. Just I'm like, oh, it's not really worth a huge amount, but no one knows about it. Like that sort of thing. That's really what I'm sort of 
you know, sort of honing in on because it's like at this point, I, I have so many games it sort of defeats the purpose. If I already have a ton of games I'm never going to get around to play, what's the point of adding a thousand more to that collection? I'm just sort of slowing down in terms of just picking up any game I don't have. It's just select titles, select weird stuff, weird-ass N- Nintendo accessories. I picked up a weird Nintendo accessory uh, recently that's I've seen like twice in my life uh, loose, and I found one in the box. You know, just stuff like that. Um I'm going to have Ben Heck try and hopefully fix one of my Nintendo peripherals. That's extremely rare. That's broken. You know, just stuff like that. I, I feel like I'm, maybe you're the same way, trending towards the preservation part of retro game collecting. I'm I'm actually like 100% there with you. I, I can relate to that. Like, it gets to a point where you're just like, do I do I really need to get a whole other box of PlayStation 2 games? Is that necessary? <laughs> um, I don't know if it is. You know what I mean? Like, So, like, I'm getting into the twilight, as that's a good term for it, of what stuff I want to try and get complete sets of. And then after that, it has to just be, like, oddball items. So that's why I care less about, I guess, now. This is going to sound bad to any gamer out there, but I'm starting to care less about the games and more about the oddball consoles, like the Apple Pippin. Like, it's cool to own one, but I don't really care how many games I ever get for it, because realistically... Probably never going to play it, but I still want to find stuff like that because, yeah, I want to preserve it. I want to make sure it's safe, essentially. But any, like, interesting game, yeah, sure, you want to pick that up. But after that, yeah, oddball items. I'm with you 100%. Yeah, I think one of the oddball system I picked up was, uh, you can find a ton of new old stock, the uh, the Chinese N64, the IQ. Oh, yeah, uh, I've held one of those once. There's a ton of ones on eBay that are brand new you can buy, so it's not like they're hard to get. I mean, they're, they must have just had, like, a warehouse full of them and never sold them, you know. Um, so it's just one of those weird things where it's tr- it's probably most likely trash, but it's just so weird to see a, a Chinese system at all during that time period, let alone one with Mario on the box for it, you know. So, you know, it is, it is what it is. I, I mean, when I, again, when I talk to certain collectors, they're more trying to, you know, help out museums, donate their really rare stuff to places like like the video game history museum you know or the museum of uh, strong museum of play places like that and i know that you know i talk to people like john hancock who are really looking into potentially opening up their own little museums in their corner of the world and i can see myself maybe doing that in, in my in, you know in my future maybe yo maybe there's a place in southern california for game collections and odd you know oddities of video game history and maybe i do that at some point because otherwise, it just sits in a room, collects dust. The rare games sit in a bank vault that no one ever sees. And, you know, what's the point? I don't want to be one of those collectors that just sort of has all my rarities tucked away just for my personal gain and, and I guess, false self-worth. I'd rather share them at some point. You know, it's like they're not doing any good sitting there. They're just not. And it's almost depressing to think about because it it's almost like I want to fast-forward the process of, of getting some <laughs> of this stuff out there. You know, it's it's weird you mention that because those kinds of same thoughts have gone through my head many times about like what like what if I died like what if I try to go home you know my plane crashes or whatever like <laughs> who's gonna take care of that stuff who's gonna make it go somewhere useful because I don't want it to just be thrown away or whatever so I'm with you in the logical sense of like I always kind of part of having a collection like that is wanting other people to see it and to celebrate it in a sense. And a museum is a very good way to do that. Um, but then you get into the same position I'm sure you're in, which is like, I'm cool with a museum. I guess I have control over where it's mine, but the idea of just donating, you know, who knows how much stuff to something that you don't control seems kind of weird. Um, so in a sense, like you're basically saying like you want your own museum and I guess I'm somewhat of the same boat. 
Sure, because I don't think there's going to be I, – I, mean, I don't need the money for my collection. I don't. I, I'm fortunate enough where I got to a point – I went from quitting my job five years ago – and you probably started off someplace similarly where like when you first started doing YouTube more and more, you weren't really making that much from it. Well, I was in the workforce for a long time and it beat the hell out of me, um, you know, working 50, 55-hour work weeks, making decent money but uh, high stress, working, you know, some Saturday mornings and, you know, you're not getting a bonus for it and it's just more piled on work. So at least when I went from that to making maybe, I don't know, one grand a year – and, and blip in YouTube revenue. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, at least at that point, I was controlling my own destiny. And uh, if it was any stress, I was putting it on myself, right? So, but the good news is that, like, I'm not in the position, like, maybe you asked me five years ago about selling off some of my collection, uh, potentially, because I needed the money. I could have maybe for, maybe seen selling off part of it. But now I don't have to. I'm fortunate enough that I've been successful enough that, you know, my collection, the collection's value doesn't mean a thing to me. I mean, it never really meant that much to me, but now it definitely doesn't mean anything to me. You know, it could be worth 25 cents. But the whole point is I think that's where eventually a lot of the stuff's going to trend to. Um, I think that there might be one last generation of, of retro game collectors that comes up uh, after us. But really, I don't think we're going to be replaced. I think 50 years from now, all this stuff that's laying around is going to be looked at as sort of relics of old, you know, old media that doesn't exist in any form anymore. It's just going to be like, oh, look at this interesting stuff. Like, look, like looking at the, you know, the old original phonograph cans from the early 1900s. If you saw like the Edison, you know, the Edison Museum in New Jersey, where it's like, oh, that's interesting. There's a couple of whack jobs out there that probably have a phonograph that can play those, but otherwise, it, it, they're just they're just relics that don't matter anymore. And I, I think we're going to see that for a majority of these retro game collections. And I know there's a bunch of collectors out there that want to strangle me because they think that's going to be their, their nest egg 30 years from now when they retire. But I'm not sure that's going to be the case. That's just my my personal opinion on it. You shouldn't count on it to retire off of. You know what? I really wish I didn't agree with you, but... <laughs> <laughs> it's depressing, uh, right? <laughs> it is. Like, because I, I hate to say it, but I, I don't think you're wrong. Um, I mean... You, you present an interesting point. There probably will be one, maybe even two generations beyond us. Uh, generation being, you know, uh, people within a 20, 30 year bracket. But um, after that, yeah, I mean, you're right. Nobody nobody really cares about 19th, early 19th century technology except for a museum that has like one or two pieces. And you look at it for half a second when you're in there like, oh, that's interesting. And you move on. Um, like we're, we all are aware of the original Edison light bulb, but would any of us really care to try and use one now? Probably not. And <laughs> my, I think my my grandfather had a player piano. Sorry to cut you off. My grandfather had a player piano. He collected the the rolls. You know, you put the roll in, it plays automatically. The keys move. Mm-hmm. Really cool. He had problems. He he found a good a buyer for the player piano. Went to some like uh, saloon that like fashioned itself as an old style old west saloon somewhere in the Midwest or West. But he he had problems giving away those player piano rolls. And while there probably were some that worth were worth money, the problem is how many people there are collecting player piano rolls from like the you know the 30s and 40s. Like how many people are actually doing that? You yeah. know, and I'm not saying obviously there's a lot more people interested in retro video games. What I'm, what I'm saying is that everything eventually hits a sort of a peak for number of collectors out there. You know, I just think that's going to be the same thing for what we're doing right now. I just do. Yeah, I, I'm sad to say that I agree with you. 
So sell all your retro game collections right now, everyone who wants to cash out. Blow up the market. We'll get them all cheap. That's our evil plan. <laughs> but that's but that's what's funny, though, because the, 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 the last people that get into collecting in a scene are usually the first ones out, at least from what I've seen. The last ones in are usually the ones that fall because, oh, they see it's hot, it's something cool, I can spend money on it, maybe there's some collectible value. Not necessarily meaning they're in for, for the money 100%, but those are the ones that usually follow the trend, but they're the first ones that get out when they see the value dipping or the interest waning. Um, so I liken, to, I liken the, whole, the whole thing, this is probably the second or third time bringing this up, to uh, toy trains, how those were pretty freaking big 30 years ago to 35 years ago. My father collected trains. There were train shows uh, a lot when I grew up, when I was like five. I grew up in the 80s. I'm probably older than you. Um, and, and train shows were pretty common back then. You go somewhere, you see the big sets set up. And these were people that, at that point, you know, they were in their 30s and 40s and 50s because they grew up with trains in the 40s and 50s as a kid. And then when they went back and they were collecting the old Lionel stuff and whatever other companies were doing them. You can't, you'd be hard-pressed hard to find a train show anymore. Like you really like think about the last time you saw an advertiser. If you did, you probably showed up. There'd be maybe fifty people there that showed up to a train show. You know, you, think about all those model train shops that used to exist that don't anymore. No, you're you absolutely know? right. I, I I had an uncle who was way into that, so he tried to push that on me as a kid, and I liked it. <laughs> I, I did. I actually did like that as a kid. But then I reached an age where I was like, all right, I, I guess I'm good. And there was actually <laughs> this one. There was this model train store, and we, I remember we used to go there and find stuff, but you know, they didn't last very long you know what kept them alive was a big phase where yo-yos were popular where they were making money, as weird as that sounds um then they went out of business you know like and so yeah i, I agree with you it's there's just some stuff that it's got a very defined age even at the height of its popularity there's there's only so long it's going to be able to last because the generation that it was cool to does eventually die sure and, and something like comic books translates more easily generation to generation with the movies and the fact that comics is, is also artwork at the same time. I think that's lost in some people that like to try to compare old uh, comic books to video games is that you can look at a comic book any, any time you're there and you can appreciate just for it being artwork in and of itself. And you can hang it up even if you have the, you know, that old comic slabbed and graded. There's something to be said for that. It's, sort of, uh, it's, all, it's also almost like an artifact of pop culture. You know, looking back at a comic from the Silver Age or Golden Age. Yeah, 50 years from now, will people be able to say the same thing about Super Mario Brothers on the NES? Sure, except there's a billion Super Mario Brothers NES cartridges as opposed to not as many copies of, you know, Action Comics number one from 1939. I was going to say exactly the same reference. I'm like, there's maybe 10 copies of of Action (laughs) Comics number one, you know, with Superman on the cover. And, you know, the the only ones, I mean, I, I don't pretend to be, like, an expert on comics, but I'll tell you right now, of the oldest ones, the ones that, unless they're autographed or something by Stan Lee or whatever, the only ones that are likely valuable are, like, the first legit Superman one, Action Comics number one, and then, like, the first issue with Batman, the first issue with Spider-Man, and so on. Yeah, like key so, issues. Yeah, key issues, exactly. The, the, the best case scenario with video games is some Mario or Sonic game if, you know, like, somehow most of the copies in the world were destroyed. Like, that's about <laughs> it. Like, cause you're right. There's there's way too many Sonic games. There's way too many Mario games. There's way too many copies of all the ones that are iconic. Um, and then obscure ones, in my opinion, the obscure ones that are currently expensive will become less expensive because they'll become too obscure for their own good. No one will care anymore. Sure. That's always my argument about Steam events, for example. It's, it's rare now, but... And it's valuable now because people know about it. But 50 years from now, what will, will a game like Steam Events present itself as? Just an oddity of game history 
that means something for a Nintendo collectors now, but 50 years from now may not mean a thing at that point. You might have a a much more common game, maybe like a sealed original Super Mario Brothers, which one just sold for, uh, what was it sold for? It was like 36,000, wasn't it? Something like that? It wasn't even the first print. It was the second print. That's right. Oh, it wasn't even the sticker seal one. And that sold for a ton of money. That might be what people are looking for. Or maybe Nintendo World Championships always maintains its value. And I say that obviously having, you know, uh, you know, owning it. But I think that's a, a possibility just because there's a piece of, you know, history there. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting it's interesting to collect games. So so what are you into collecting most of, uh, besides the – is there a system you gravitate towards? Dreamcast, well, for example? Yeah, hey, what do you know? What a setup. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, my my favorite of all time was the Sega Dreamcast, and that's I, – I went hard after that. And I did it in, like, the, the 2008 economic crash, so it was actually really easy because nobody, nobody gave a crap about Dreamcast stuff right then. Um, I, don't, so, I would argue most people still don't. Oh, oh yeah. most most collectors still probably don't care. Dreamcast stuff is stupid hard to get now, like really, really hard. Yeah, Dreamcast stuff is actually really really hard. It's very hot right now amongst collectors to try and get Dreamcast stuff. Good luck to you if you try it, because most stores they like now nah, we have the sports games maybe and like that's it. Like nobody ever has it in stock. Is um, that because as people have found a system that maybe it started off really cheap and then they just sort of glommed onto that? Yeah, that's part of it. It's also, you know, the fact that it is Sega's last console, like, definitively. Uh, like, they'll never do another one, you know, so it's nice to get a full set. And the set is also reasonably small. If you're doing North America, it's 248 games, so it's not really impossible. Um, now, what I did is I got the full North American set, and then I got all the European exclusives, uh, which was, like, 24 additional games, and then all the Japanese games, all the Japanese exclusives, which was an additional, like, 400 titles, something like that. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that one was a little bit harder, but uh, I did manage to pull that off. I also got, I get still the new titles that come out, the independent Dreamcast games, um, as well as a lot of the third-party, just random stuff like Bleamcast that popped up, you know, stuff like that. Uh, and I got a whole bunch of accessories and console variations. I have a whole bunch of development hardware for the Dreamcast that I've acquired over the years, um, as well as, like, the Divers 2000 Dreamcast, which was a Japanese uh, television that looks like an old iMac, and it has a Dreamcast built into it. And it was, like, designed to be a physical iteration of Skype, as weird as that might sound. (laughs) The idea was, like, you know, you're going to buy this TV, you're going to put it in your house, and you're going to load this, uh, basically, this camera software, and it comes with a webcam, and it has a modem built in. Everyone is going to have these. They're going to be stupid popular. You'll put it in every room in your house, and you'll be able to just call each other all over the house, all over the world. It's physical Skype. Didn't work at all. They only made like 200 of them, supposedly. But I ended up with one. Again, in like 2008 when no one cared. Now, I mean, I bought it for like 300 bucks with shipping from Japan. Now there's one on eBay. The last one that sold was like 6,500 bucks. Um, what is it called again? The Divers, as in swimming, <laughs> Divers 2000 Dreamcast. Let me look this up. I don't think I've seen one of these. And how many of these did they actually make? Supposedly 200. 200? Yeah, Sega oh, it's a some... wacky-looking TV. Wow. Yeah, isn't it? It's a yeah, blue yeah. 1950s looking TV with antenna yeah. on it. Those are purely cosmetic. They do not do a damn thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so someone wants $2,000 for one. No, someone wants uh, 6500 for one. 
Okay, I'm looking at one right now. So I want two thousand, uh, two thousand US for a loose one. Another one ah. is selling one for fifty four hundred or best offer in the box, never used. That must have come down because I did a video on it a few months ago, and that was the at the time they wanted like six thousand five hundred and stuff. But I'm glad it came down. <laughs> well, how many people are going to be spending that much money on that? I guess so. It has to come down at some point. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Just like all collectibles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, now it's on sale for 5000 It's on sale for 7% off for $5,000. Well, you should just pull the trigger. Just go for it. Man. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Don't I even think 5, about it. Don't even think about it. Just this. do it. Buy it right here live on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I don't have time to play my Amiga CD32, but I'll buy this Divers 2000. Dreamcast yeah, you should do it, man. TV. <laughs> I guess I always thought... I guess I always thought Dreamcast was somewhat easier to collect for because at least when I was finding out the swap meet, no one cared about them. Yeah, I'd but see, when like, was that? Hey, uh, well, I don't know, three years ago, four years ago, hmm. maybe. I, I, I mean, I own. Let's see how many games I own. I own a hundred and five games, and I probably bought ninety nine of those or a hundred of those from the flea market. I yep. think. Then again, I'm trying to see how many are, are ones that are probably hard to find. I'm not a Dreamcast expert, so I'm not positive. What are, what are some of the, What are some of the hard to find ones? Uh, you know, ironically, you're not asking a good person for this because I finished the set so long ago that I stopped paying attention to what's rare and what isn't. Um, okay. I know Sonic Adventure Limited Edition is the hardest North American title to find because it was only sold at Blockbuster and it wasn't actually – or sorry, uh, Hollywood Video. It was just a rental. It was kind of like um, uh, Clay Fighter Sculptor's Cut for the N64. Uh, it's kind of like that. That one's the hardest one to find. Uh, but there's, you know, some of the other ones that, from what I remember, Project Justice was kind of hard to find. Um, some of the Giga Wing games. Uh, a lot of stuff Capcom made is actually hard to find. Um, oh, one, and then there's always the dumb sports title that no one can find is NBA Hoops. You know, is never around. Um, but, yeah, you'd have to ask someone who's actually actively collecting Dreamcast right now because, like I said, I, I finished. You got them so long ago, you can just pick them off of eBay easily, basically. You can say, okay, I'll pick, them up, pick up that one, pick up that one. There wasn't much competition for people that were going for full sets at the time. No, not not back when I did that. That that has been a recent thing. Oh, okay. So this is basically where I, I think TurboGrafx sort of picked up steam about four years ago where people finally yeah. said, oh, these are worth money. Oh, this is, this is interesting. That's probably what I would compare it to most likely. Uh, you know, like I was lucky enough to complete – uh, my collection. I still need three CD games, but they're so expensive. No one else really goes after them. But I collected. I, I finished my uh, North American Hue card set before most people even knew the system existed. So I was lucky to get get in and out of that before that. Yeah, it's that's a really apt comparison. That's pretty much exactly how it went down. Because I'm like you. I remember when TG16 was this obscure thing. No one had ever even heard of. Wasn't even sure it was real. Um, TurboGrafx-16 was always the console. Like when I was growing up, I I am, I believe I am younger than you. I grew up mostly in the nineties, so I'm 30 currently. Um, but when, when I was a kid, when it was all Genesis versus SNES, uh, there was always some kid who always claimed he knew a guy who had a (laughs) TurboGrafx-16, but nobody ever really saw one or knew what it was. Um, but I did. Uh, and I remember a phase there, like I bought one at a store for $24 and it came with 10 games and one of them was Splatterhouse. And I, I actually did a video on it at the time. I opened it up, I cleaned it up. I did a video showing like, Hey guys, here it is sealed. Here's the price tag. And nobody knew what it was. And then now it's weird to think years later, people go back to watch that to, to clean the video. And they're like, how the hell did you get that for $24? It's like, I don't know. That's, it was worthless a few years ago. Now everybody oh, wants sure. it. Yeah. yeah, like tw- about 12 years ago, 13 years ago, sure, no one cared about it. The CD mm-hmm. system was maybe like $60, $70 uh, then. 
Um, I, I only had one myself because I won it in a newspaper contest, local <laughs> newspaper contest. So I owned one, and, I, and the rich kid whose parents literally won the lottery across town that my friend Joey was friends with, he had one. Um, but other than that, I knew no one else that had one. Um, so I only owned about six games for it. Um, and then there was one place on the East Coast called – it was a, a regional – mom and pop rental store for movies and games called easy video and they actually had one store that you could rent turbo graphics games so because as, as a kid i remember playing dragon spirit on turbo but i was always in my head i'm like but i didn't own that game so how did i play it and i was like oh i remembered i rented it you know it's like one of the few times i rented a turbo game but that's so foreign to people to think about something like that renting a you know a system like that out yeah you know now that you mention it, you're right. I can't think of any store I ever went to in my life that rented TurboGrafx-16 games, ever. I'm pretty sure it was that, because I don't remember renting it for the NES. I, I specifically remember playing the TurboGrafx uh, version of the game as a kid, but I couldn't remember. I did, but I didn't own it. I guarantee you I didn't own it. I, I owned mostly the common games, um, Vigilante, World Class Baseball, TV Sports Hockey, Taking It to the Hoop, yeah. you know, uh, um, Legendary Axe. But I, I, I you just scratch half my collection. <laughs> exactly, all the ones that when you when you you know I you know when I go to the swap me I don't go as much as I used to. But you know I'll find a Tower Graphics sixteen and some games like once every two years maybe. Um, and at the time you you know you'll find eight or nine games that there was an earlier flea market madness where I, I scored a Tower Graphics with about ten twelve games and and half of those games are always the same. Then you throw in Bonk and maybe a Splatter House. Uh, that are in there, but uh, but as a kid, I, and I had one of the worst games ever, Battle Royale, um, which didn't come out in Japan because they had the real games, the real the real wrestling games, Fire Pro Wrestling, and we got trash like like Battle Royale. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that's a tangent. That was a bad purchase as a kid. That was a bad decision. Uh, getting that. Oh man. Anyway, <laughs> so what? Do you, so we're gonna we're gonna see each other in, in New Jersey again. Uh, so what do you what do you enjoy about these conventions when you go out to them? What do you, what do you end up doing at these at these? When you well, go? D- it depends what, what kind of event we're talking about. Um, but if we're talking about like the convention you and I are going to, those are fun because I like to meet people who actually watch my channel specifically. Um, I like to meet the the viewers, and you know if if they ever want photos or sign stuff or whatever, that's always great. But it's also good to just meet up with other people that I only ever get to see, such as you. I only get to see you at conventions like that. Um, and then, you know, there's always the shopping element to it, although that has kind of lost some of its magic because of reasons we've stated throughout this, which is, you know, you're kind of getting to an end game, uh, you know, so that that's not as awesome anymore. So mostly it's just the, the social interaction aspect. Taking pictures, shaking hands, kissing babies. Maybe buying some overpriced Dreamcast games that are around. I don't need to buy the Dreamcast games there. <laughs> do, you, do you also buy all the wacky uh, Dreamcast accessories? Are you into those as well? Um, I have a bunch of them, and every once in a while I do find one that I did not know existed, um, and I pick it up. Like, literally, I did that a couple of days ago. I was in Seattle. I went to Pink Gorilla. I don't know if you're familiar with that chain. Oh, absolutely. Um, oh, yeah. So my buddy, uh, Kelsey Lewin, she uh, actually runs the store. And uh, so I was hanging out with her for a bit, and I was just looking at stuff, and I saw that she had this random Dreamcast memory card I've never seen before by some company I'd never even heard of. And I was like, I- I'm buying this, and I have to get this, because I was just like, I've-, I've never seen it. But because that's very rare to me to find any sort of Dreamcast stuff that I do not own and have never seen. Sure. That's like me. I Probably me in Graphics. I pick up any wacky-ass accessory I can find. Like, they had... I think they had Sega ones as well. They had gamer gloves. They had like mm-hmm. like neon gloves you wore, 
And so when I saw them, I was like, oh, my God, I've never seen these before. I have to buy them. I almost don't care about the price. You know, i got to pick it up. Uh, for Nintendo, for, for 8-bit NES, it's a little bit tougher just because I still find controllers and accessories I haven't seen before year after year just because there was probably hundreds released and many were probably regional or had very limited distribution. So you, you find these knockoff ones that, hell, they could have released them in you know, mid-90s in some areas that it's hard to track them all down. You know, yeah, so that's I, something I, that I, I don't have to buy them all, but I usually snap a picture on my phone when I see them. I do not envy you for being that into the NES because that's got to be painful. Like the amount of stuff that you have to pursue for that. Um, most, most peripheral, most peripherals by, by, of any console, probably by a factor of 10, at, I mean, at least. Yeah. Uh, that's, the number of controllers was in, absolutely insane. I believe system. it. And then you got all sorts. I don't know how much you care about, you know, the imports and stuff, but like not just Europe or Japan, but, you know, like random stuff only released in like Brazil, you know, like that's that's got to be astronomically hard to do with the NES. Yeah, for the for the for the I guess semi bootleg releases or regional releases, I don't get into those as much. I mean, I don't even get into collecting um, what the hell are they called? God, I'm so tired. I can't think of them. Uh, shit, the Sachin games, the Sachin games, which were, you know, basically commercially available by mail order in the, in the late nineties here. Um, they're one step above pirate carts and, and they're hard to find. I think a full set of sealed ones went on eBay. It's like 50 plus games went for like six or 7,000 about a month ago. And I'm not even to those. I'm more into like the, the mainstream releases. I start with North America, then I'll, you know, go over to Europe and then if there's some Japanese stuff I like, I'll probably do that. You have to draw a line at some point. Otherwise, you run out of space, you run out of money. Dude, you know, it, is, like, I don't, yeah. it is so creepy, like, how much you and I think alike on this type of thing. Like, literally down to, like, well, here's my rules. I'll start with North America, then I'll do Europe, and if possible, I'll tackle Japan. Yeah. So, like, it's, I'm missing – I think I need, like, eight of the European NES exclusives. I'm missing only three North American. And for Famicom games – if it's something kind of weird or unique or kind of funny, I'll pick it up if it's cheap, but I'm not going to pursue it. Like I got, for example, for the, on the Famicom, I got that gold, the uh, gold punch out, the giveaway one that there's not many. Like I pick up something like that. That's, I think, interesting, but I'm not going to go out and get like every single Japanese exclusive. I'm not going to go get the, you know, whatever, how many there are, six, seven hundred, you know, Japanese exclusive. It's just not worth my time or energy to do that. You know, and plus half its half its shovelware games I can't play any, anyway, mm-hmm. or freaking mod or freaking mahjong games that Ian might like, but I don't want to play. You know, it's, it's just those sort of things. Have you been to Japan? No, I haven't, but I, I got to get out there. Yeah, you should. I, I, so I was there earlier this year, and even I was tempted to pick up a bunch of Famicom stuff, and I got some. I was with a buddy of mine who lives out there, and he was telling me like these are the good ones, these are worth it, blah blah blah. And I'm telling you, Japan will break you mentally as a collector (laughs) because you will see things you've never seen before. You'll see oddballs you cannot resist. And you'll be like, you're just immersed in all these amazing things that to you are crazy imports. And over there, they're like dirt cheap. Oh, Um, yeah. And you can't help yourself. I ended up going with a suitcase. I came back with a second suitcase. I advise anybody who goes there, go with two suitcases minimum. Um, oh yeah, case, there's, I mean, I'm sure there's like Famicom games that are like given away for like worth like you know a dollar each. Oh, like mi- a tub dude, of them. there was much less. You go to like a book off or whatever, they'll have like giant tubs of Famicom games that are like 99 yen a piece, which is about 80 cents. And you're just like this. You look the game up; it's like 10 bucks on eBay. You're like, I, 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 I don't even know what to do right now. Like, 
you can't control yourself. It's it's weird. So good luck to you. Yourself. Good luck to you if you ever go over there. It's it's <laughs> it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. Yeah, I think I probably would would probably do my best to stay to, for like PC Engine stuff and things that are probably more interesting versus you know five like I said five hundred RPGs or Mahjong games I can't play yeah. that are worthless. Yeah, and you can't go buy eBay prices for this stuff because these are like import prices. I know, but. It- it's just one of those things. It, it just messes with your head when you see how much other people are paying for it, and then you're like, "But it's right here, and it's nothing." Yeah, <laughs> like I would go for like Konami Exciting Boxing if I saw it there, like yeah. the one that had the punching bag, um, like something like that. I would go for if I could find it, or like a weird accessory, or they had like the the, the Wild Gummin uh, revolver light gun that that didn't come out here. You know, I would probably go for something like that if I found it. You know, but yeah, I, I know you got to be careful. Like you have to. I, I have people that uh, I have. People that send me stuff they find there every now and then. And sometimes like, yeah, this stuff is just you can find it all over. It's not that much money. But here I don't want it, but I'll send it to you. And it's like, oh, thanks a lot. You know, but at some point you just don't have the space for, you know, 700 Japanese games. You know, yeah, yeah trust me. I, I can relate. <laughs> How often do you go out to Japan? Oh, I've only been there once. Um, this year I was there for two weeks and I want to go back bad. <laughs> bad. <laughs> Um, what, did, what did you What did you end up doing out there? Um, so mostly it was just to spend time uh, with my girlfriend and just kind of go to Japan because I, I just always had wanted to go. Um, and while I, we stayed in Osaka primarily, a little bit of time up in Kyoto, and you know, in the downtime, I guess we just mostly went to stores and just check stuff out, you know, because uh, she wanted to check out all sorts of like um, mostly Star Wars figures that only came out in Japan, and I wanted to check out, of course. Video games, in addition, like that's how we do vacations. <laughs> you know, it's not we're gonna go, we're gonna go do like, oh, we're gonna go see all the touristy sites. It's like, nah, we'll go take our required photo of the Osaka Castle. Now let's find a book off. You know, like that was the plan. Um, so I know that sounds like we went to Japan just to buy video games. That's not true. It, it was our vacation, but it's like, what are we gonna do while we're here? That's what we're doing. Um, so that that was a lot of fun. But yeah, mostly it was it was just stuff like that. It was great, dude. My my score, my biggest score there was a GameCube, which doesn't sound like it would be that insane, but it's, uh, I was in this, I was in one book off and I saw just a white GameCube and I was like, I don't remember a white GameCube. And I looked it up and like, there was a European white GameCube. It's not really worth much. And then there's a Japanese one. The Japanese one was a Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles bundle set that was only, it was only given away, uh, as like a contest prize. 150 of them were produced. A boxed one is sold for about three grand. A used one for about a thousand dollars. This store had it labeled at twenty-seven dollars U.S. So I bought it and uh, did a couple of videos on it. And that that was my ultimate score over there because it was like holy shit! Like I just I just I really walked away with one there. Um, it was in good decent shape. Did it have a controller with it? It had the controller. It had the Game Boy Player. It had the Game Boy Player software. Um, the only thing that was wrong with it is it had been yellowed a bit, but I even did a video of restoring it back to its normal color um, with the whole de-yellowing process. So, yeah, like it's it's in pretty much as good a shape as it could possibly be minus, you know, the original box. Were you tempted to sell it or you figure, oh, this is a once in a lifetime, you know, fine, I, I had to keep it? I had no current plans to get rid of it. It was just one of these things like, I have to save this. Kind of like what we talked about before with preservation. Like, I know what this thing is. 
Um, I don't want, you know, they could potentially end up in some little kid's hands and he might have fun with it, but at the same time, it can end up in mine and I could just keep it safe, you know, because if there's really only 150 of these things and there's like one on eBay for $3,000, I don't know. It, it would have been silly to not buy it. Yeah. Um, that's, that's what we all live for, those sort of deals. Absolutely. I'm looking at a box version right now in PlayAsia. It's not in stock, but. Oh man! Imagine if I had the, had the box too. Ooh. Check, check. Oh, eBay. and also, oh, and the adapter was also white as well. The Game Boy, adapter. yeah, the Game Boy uh, player was wow. white. And I think that was the, yeah, I think that was the only way to get the white Game Boy player because even the European white one didn't have that. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that in person. Not even at uh, Portland. I don't think I've seen one of these before. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Ooh, beautiful. Good job finding that. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh yeah that's one of those ones yeah once in a lifetime finds I'm still waiting for one of my in the wild finds like that where you find something that rare like my friends have found like yeah I found magical chase and a bunch of other turbo games at a at a flea market or found you know little Samson and dinosaur peak for NES at a flea market I've yet to come across that big find like that at least mm-hmm. for you know at least for a, a game that's that's rare. It, it almost seems like I, you know, I'll buy a game that's hard to find, and then I might find it a year later at the swap meet for cheap. And then, but it's never been where I was looking for something that was rarer than found it. That, that you know, the, probably the biggest one. You'll probably laugh at this. Uh, for some reason, at my swap meet, I, I found three box Samba de Amigos for your Dreamcast. Like, you know, the whole box. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, you really don't find that too often. But I, I found probably two or three at my swap meet, like in six, seven years, which I always thought was funny. Because that's you don't really find it too often. For some reason, they just sort of, you know, sort of showed up. Yeah, the uh, the know. North American controller for that was very very limited. I think it was only sold through Electronics Boutique at the time. Oh yeah, so I, I yeah, think. so I, I found I found it multiple times out here. The, the North American one, impressive. Um, so I, so I found. I think the first time I found one uh, was when the, within the first year I moved here, and then another time I found one. Um, with my friend, there was two of them. We both got one, and I pieced together the best condition one, and then sold the other one um, at a at a, a, a game convention for not that much. I don't think they go for that much, um, as far as I remember. This was a few years ago, but that was always something I thought was pretty funny. That when I moved out to San Diego, there was so much, there were so many better. Uh, the, the, the flea markets were so much healthier, let's just say, than they were back in New Jersey. So I was just finding more and more stuff. You know, I, I found, a, a, like, a demo Atari 2600 games. Not necessarily prototypes, but I found, you know, demo games, you know, like loaner copies that are only worth, they're probably worth, like, $100, $120, not that much, but at least I found them out here. Would never find that in New Jersey, for example. Um, you know, I, I, f- I found, like, a, you know, box Atari Jaguar complete for, like, 20 bucks when I first moved out here. This stuff that you not only don't find anymore, I wasn't even finding that stuff in New Jersey in 2005. It was just really tough to c- come across that stuff. Well, probably also probably helps that a lot of those companies were actually based out here. Or well, I say here as if I'm from California, but you know I'm in California at the moment. But a lot of video game companies are based on the West Coast, so a lot of their inventory just kind of got dumped into the state. Sure. Also, I guess San Diego is more of a transit uh, town. A lot of military, a lot of people moving back and forth. So maybe you know they they get rid of their stuff. That might be something have to do with it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Not not a huge amount of people are from San Diego. Usually, you move here from somewhere or you move out of here. At some point, that might be uh, part of it. But you know, I, I, like I said before, I don't go to the. I don't know how many flea markets are in Chicago, but out here they're they're not dead, but they're not as healthy as they were. And so I maybe go once a month, and I used to go every week. It used to be that if I didn't go, I felt like a nervous tick that I was missing out on some sort of deal because I was. 
if I wasn't going, I knew there was some sort of score I was not getting. You know, but that sort of subsided. Uh, probably helped working on a certain NES guidebook probably helped that because I had to stay home and write. <laughs> uh, but eventually I sort of got over it. Was like, it, was like kicking, it was like kicking a nicotine habit, so to speak. At some point I was like, oh, it was easier and easier, you know, not to go to the swap meet. So at this point when I go, it purely is more for fun. If I, if I miss out on a deal, it's not like I'm kicking myself. You know, at this point, because I found, even though I haven't found like the you know a gold mine like you did with that console, I still I found my fair share of good stuff. Still, I I, I can't I really can't complain about the stuff I've I've found. You know, like sure. Atari Link Atari Links consoles with like twenty games in the case for like you know twenty five bucks. You know, stuff like that. I've I found my fair share. Yeah. Of, of goodies out there. That's pretty impressive. Uh, the the swap scene in Chicago is not very good, to be honest with you. The best place in the United States I've ever found for retro games is the Seattle area, actually, just because of the amount of stores that exist there and the fact that like both Nintendo and Microsoft are there. And like, oh there, sure, there's so much like Nintendo oddities, especially pop up there all the time. The, the employees that took stuff, yeah, when yeah, they quit, yeah, exactly. Um, this isn't totally relevant, but you were talking about Samba de Amigo and we were talking about Japan. Did you know that Sega released a spiritual sequel to that game only in Japan and only on the PS1? Like, after they were done with consoles, they made a PS1 game. Um, no. No, it's called Mini Moni Shaker and Tambourine Dapayon. Um I had to look that up just to be sure of the title, but I own the game. But when I was out in Japan, I actually found like the maracas set for it, and I wanted to buy it like so bad because it was like you know it was like uh, seven hundred yen, which is like six dollars. And I was like, oh man, I want this, but there there was no physical way that I could put it in my suitcase. It's huge, and I was just oh, like, oh no, that. yeah, I know, I had to let it go. But it, that's another thing that kills you about Japan is like you have to be very particular about what you pick up because of all the space that it takes, um, and you're limited to your suitcase basically, unless you cheat and start mailing stuff. But um, yeah, so in that case, I, I just found it amazing that that existed, and that's just a perfect example of how Japan could screw with you if you if you ever go over there, man. I, I pity you. <laughs> yeah, it's almost going to be you almost don't want to because, you, like you said, you're going to see stuff that, you know, where you don't – it, I guess that's the thing with retro game collecting. It's like anything else. There's a lot of things you don't want until you see it. And then yeah. it's like, oh, now you're leaving it behind. Did you, so did you ever end up getting that game? Did you ever buy it on eBay or you just never got it? I have the disc. I have, like, the actual game uh, with the original case and everything. I just don't have, like, the controller for it. Um, ah, okay. Yeah. The controller is what I found over there, and I, I really wanted to pick it up, but just because it was a weird piece of Sega hardware made for the PlayStation 1. You know, it's like they didn't make – they made two games for the PS1. That and uh, they ported over Puyo Puyo Sun at one point. Um, and so I got both of those as more of a Sega guy. I just liked the idea that they had actually made two games for the PS1. But to think that Sega produced a controller as well, I want that. But space. <laughs> Yeah, well, it looks like the controller doesn't go for that much, so you can exactly. you'll pay more for you'll pay more for shipping than the than the, the actual uh, piece of, of merchandise, which is often, unfortunately, the case, right? Yeah, oh it, yeah. It, it, it used to be that it used to be that maybe not anymore, but you could get a a PC engine for like twenty dollars, but to ship it was forty or fifty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it used to, so unless you were bundling up like twenty different things, it wasn't worth to get it. You know, that's just the way it is. So people out there don't complain about the price of ship my book overseas, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, it, it costs a lot to ship stuff across an ocean. Did you go to, did you go to any of the cool arcades over there when you were in Japan? Um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, not so much. I mean, uh, the, the things I actually focused more on was, like, so Sega has these, like, big buildings over there that just have, like, giant capsule toys machines in them. 
And, like, we're talking, like, huge machines. Um, and it's actually really easy to win figures in there. And then, like, every floor either has capsule machines or arcade stuff. And it's weird because there's almost no employees who work in there. Like, maybe there'll be one person for the entire building. It's it's strange. And then it's just, it's always open. People just go in. And I, I was more, like, floored by its existence than anything else. Um, and they were just everywhere. You just kept going in and be like, wow, there's an entire unoccupied arcade right here. This is strange. <laughs> no one's no one's there to, to get out of work. They also yeah. have a lot of the. Uh, I guess it's basically legalized gambling, where they have uh, I guess the pachinko machines, and you earn, you get trinkets that you trade in for prizes. Or how does that work? It's not actually, exactly I, gambling. I never actually ran into those, so I'm not totally sure. I was surprised too because I was the way I've been told is like, oh yeah, Sega like 90 percent of their income is pachinko machines now. I'm like, all right, so I should see those everywhere, but I never saw one. Um, so I, I can't say. But yeah, you're right. I, I I thought I would see that too. Yeah, it's the same with Konami, where they make a ton of money off of like slot machines and gambling machines yeah. at this point. So it's almost like, by their perspective, well, we're guaranteed to make a ton of money doing this. Screw this game development thing. You mm-hmm. know, that's sort of old hat at this point. Hate to say it. So what do you got? What do you got going on down the line besides seeing me in New Jersey? Uh, well, <laughs> in, like, in I said, <laughs> like I said, I'm going to an event tomorrow for uh, South Park Fractured But Whole, and then I see you. Um, then I'll actually be back here for a completely different thing. I mean, back in San Francisco. Um, and that's just the stuff I know right now, schedule-wise. Uh, but it, I'm also, as always, going to be producing more videos for my channel. I actually have a bunch done all the way through, like, November. Um, really? You have yeah. all, you all, all in the can? Either a bunch of them are, in the, or a bunch are at least listed, and I know what I have to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I make a, I plan it out. Um, and then my other channels, uh, Game Society specifically, is... We're always working on other stuff, you know. There's there's all sorts of gameplay videos and stuff we pop over there. We try to do a lot of early access things with more modern day games. Um, then we do you know monthly live streams, which I do myself. I do live streams on my channel all the time, but they're they're like live Q and As where people just come. They basically just talk to me for a while. But the thing that makes them, I guess, interesting is that I usually go for like four or five hours. Five uh, hours of Q and A. Literally last night, I did one at the hotel in Seattle for like four hours and ten minutes. Um, my all-time record is five hours and forty minutes. What the hell, dude? Holy crap! No yeah. break. Woo. Uh, I I try not to. I did actually take a a, a pee break during the one yesterday, and I apologize to the audience because I was just like, "That's very unprofessional," and I know it. But I always ask them ahead of time. It's is unprofessional. It, okay? it is. It's unprofessional. <laughs> I ask them if it's okay. Can I go? To, can I go pee? And like, if they say no, then I would stay. But if they say yes, and they always do, then I I run off and I, I try to put something interesting on the screen for a second while I run off and pee as fast as possible and then run back. But I've only ever had wow. to do that like twice. Usually, I just sit there the entire time and power through it. What what have you th- uh, thought about over the years? How you've seen YouTube uh, change? What are your, what are your have you, has it gone in a direction that you agree with? Is it sort of well, it's corporate, it's to be expected? Is it an unfortunate in your eyes how how YouTube has evolved with the adpocalypse and you know now with the, with the copyright claims on videos uh, beefing up? I have felt for about a year now that YouTube has tried to take the U out of YouTube. Um. They they've obviously pushed for more corporate content as you as you point out and Adpocalypse has really kind of cemented that uh, where to the point where a lot of YouTubers who are just kind of doing it for the fun are just like even less motivated to make content and those of us who depend on it as a job a lot of them have given up and have started just doing other things and those of us who are still here are really struggling 
um, for a, a, you know for the for the most part anyway, depending on what your what your type of content is. Um, so like one of my channels has been hit very very hard. My channel, my own personal one, is has not been hit as hard because it doesn't deal in anything other than discussion for the most part, which YouTube likes. But, you know, gameplay videos uh, that feature video games of people shooting each other, the system can't tell the difference between that and, like, an ISIS video. So it's, you know, it, it, it's, oh, it's all violent, therefore it must be bad. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't like that. But at the same time, YouTube is significantly understaffed, and they uh, they don't really have a mechanism in place to try and fix that. So, like, I want to I wanna complain, but at the same time, I don't have a solution for them, you know? I, I think it, it, it started off as more of a pet project and more of a fun thing, and now it's become too big for its own good, in a sense. Well, it's always it's always going to be the choice of, you say, there's no more you and YouTube where it's going away. Well, they're never going to stop people from putting up the videos they want to, which is whether or not they're going to be monetized. Yeah. You know, are people, are people going to be able to earn money from them? So that's a natural progression of the business where I think that now – you know, with the, with the with the corporations really wondering about where their advertiser dollars are going, I saw this I saw this coming um, for a, at least a couple of years. I just didn't think it would happen this suddenly, you know, and and with this haphazard of design. I thought they would have eased into this a little bit more thoroughly than well, a, a ton of companies are pulling out. Now all of a sudden, we got to throw together this machine learning and throw together these new systems. Um, you would think that a company like Google would have saw this coming and would have prepared for it a little bit better. That's what was the most shocking to me. Not that it happened any of this. I thought it was bound to happen. It's just that how it went from oh everything's fine, everyone's you know ads in front of any type of video you can want, even though an advertiser might agree to. Oh no, now advertisers are coming down on us because there's no controls in place at all. You know they thought they thought somehow that they can get away with treating. YouTube and online videos separately than all other forms of entertainment where advertisers have control over where their uh, dollars are placed. I just thought that the, the, the honeymoon was going to end. I just didn't see it ending quite like this where, you know, it sort of was like, oh, a cat's out of the bag. You know, so that was the most surprising part to me where they, they, where they put themselves in a position to have a quote unquote adpocalypse. It didn't think it thoroughly more up to that point that that there was going to be a, a tipping point where all the advertisers were going to wonder what the hell's going on so but i think it's going to even out and i think we're, we're starting to see that and there's always going to be bumps along the way uh, i was I, I was affected a little bit um i had some videos demonetized i wasn't aware of but in the past i mean i've had ones questionably taken down or not taken down but copyright claimed by even nintendo for like an old flea market madness where i use like a super mario brothers 2 song in the background for like 30 seconds for example mm-hmm. and so I, I haven't made money off of that video for years so you know i i look at it as uh you know i i have to sort of uh you know roll with the punches so to speak when it comes to this stuff i think it's the best you can do you know yeah not, like not, any youtuber th- that's what we all have to do <laughs> there's not much recourse and and plus i think you know uh this, uh, the, the YouTuber, if they can see what's coming, they can diversify sort of their online portfolio or whatever the else they have going on. Maybe do some Twitch, you know, as, as an avenue. I I have to get into that myself. I really don't have the time. Or you know, maybe someone writes a book, or they do music, or they do something else. They may you know do T-shirts to order to supplement the ad revenue that's disappeared. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. I mean, lately a lot of. Um the uh, compensation has come from the form of, uh, of viewers through things like uh, PayPal donations, super chat, Patreon, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it sucks to have to kind of lean on that 
it, it, it makes you feel like an asshole, but like at the same time, like you know, you got to eat too. Well, I, I would I would think that you know the 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 people that genuinely like you and they watch your content, you know. Uh, several times a week or almost daily, uh, some will, some will be like, "Hey, maybe I should, you know, show some sort of compensation or some sort of form of of graciousness for this person." Be, like someone like you beating themselves up, working six seven days a week for eight years. Yes. You know, it's, it's almost like a small price to pay, right? I would like to think so. <laughs> I, I I hate the term. I, I'm glad to see that finally people have sort of come off the wall or come off the you know. People are ready to, to come after us with pitchforks when Patreon first started up. Oh, I know. When I when I did my video announcing it, people were like, "Fucking kill him!" And I was just like, "All right, dude, sorry." Or if you if you did even a single brand video like four or five years ago, people were ready to have your head. And now they're like, "Well, it's sort of necessary for some of these guys to you know survive uh, or, or at least be able to do it as much as they want to." Like if I didn't have some sort of compensation from, for example, on the podcast having some sort of sponsors, then the podcast doesn't really make much. And then it's like not that you're going to stop doing it, but it gives you a better incentive to do it if you know you're being compensated as well. You know, yeah. like if you if you, you can involve more people to be involved with it, you can spread the love around. You know, you can have some sort of higher production value. You can buy new equipment. I mean, you know how it goes. Yeah, I do, and that's what I always tell people is like, if I could do anything, I would be doing what I'm doing. But the reality of the world we live in is, you need money to do things on a day to day basis. So if I can't make money doing what I'm doing, I have to stop doing it and do other things. That's just how reality works. So don't assume I'm only doing this for money and no other reason. Like, I want to do this regardless. I just can't necessarily do that, much like I'm sure you couldn't. Yeah, it's, it's like asking an actor working on, you know, uh, uh, the, you know the Avengers, Infinity Wars. Would, would you still do this if you weren't paid anything? How many actors say, sure, I would do that? I would give up four months of my life to work on this for nothing, you know, versus – yeah, this is enjoyable. I lo- I'm having the time I left, but yes, I should be compensated for my effort at least as well. Yeah, you know, it's, 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 at some point you have to look at that side of it. At least in my opinion, I agree with you. Speaking of that, do you, do you see uh, yourself doing this for you know ten years from now, twenty years from now? I like to ask this of my guests. Do you see yourself getting into more behind the scenes stuff, producing? Where, where do you see your future lying? Uh, to be honest, I, I, I want to do this as long as I possibly can, but it's always good to have some sort of fallback. And I've, I've thought about those kinds of options, whether it would be um, to continue that original film career pursuit, which there is an avenue, though I'm not currently at liberty to discuss what it is. Um, there's also uh, the possibility of just working in the gaming industry itself. Through all the stuff I do, I have a, I've made a lot of friends at various video game companies, and I kind of feel like if I really wanted to, I could probably get a job working at some place like that. Um, but I don't. But I don't want to do any of those things. I want to be doing what I'm doing. But it's good to have plan B, C, D, E, F, you know, and so on. So what would you want to do if you had to get into game development? What would you want to do? Oh, if I had to work in like the actual gaming industry as opposed to the media side of things, I would probably want to do public relations stuff. Okay. Um, more so, I, like I'm not a game developer. Like I, I never had programming skills. Maybe part of me would be interested in, you know, the storytelling aspect of it. But I kind of feel like... I, I I would rather just do the uh, the human communication, do the social media stuff. Essentially, <laughs> yeah, I, I'd rather because that's kind of what I've gotten good at, at through the nature of this job. 
So I feel like that's my, where my skills would be best used, as opposed to being another cook in the kitchen of saying, like, no, I have a really good idea for a story or a game when, you know, they got plenty of people who can do that as well. But at the same time, that sounds a little weird, considering that my next best choice would be to do something more involved in film, which would actually would be storytelling. So, like I said, that's why they're all plan B through F, you know? <laughs> like, I, I think less about them, because I, I want to have fallbacks, but I don't want to prioritize my fallbacks, if that makes sense. You heard it here first. Adam's going to be directing episode nine. You heard the director dropped out. Dude, we, 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 we talked about this before the stream. You were not supposed to bring that up. Bleep all of this. Adam, where can people find you on YouTube and Twitter? Uh, you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash Adam Korlik, A-D-A-M-K-O-R-A-L-I-K. You can also look up Adam Korlik on Twitter. You can look it up on Facebook. I've got all that stuff. You can also, if you want to do the comedy route, you can look up youtube.com slash Game Society Pimps. That's where we do all the, the comedy stuff with celebrity impressions and all those kinds of things. And I also appear on Blame Society Films and Machinima. You can tell he's good at social media. He had it all down, like ready to go, like clockwork. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks so much, Adam, for uh, coming on the podcast. We should do this uh, again in the future. Talk about more esoteric Dreamcast items. Yeah, that'd be great, man. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again to Adam for speaking to me this week. Before we get going, let me tell you about That's It Veggie Bars. You remember That's It Fruit Bars? They have fruit, and that's it. I don't know how they've done it before. We, t- we spoke about it on the CU podcast with Ian incredible bars it defies the laws of gravity and nature well they're back that's it veggie bars they got stuff like black beans and carrots black beans and peas black beans and corn it's a healthy snack 90 calories all natural ingredients it's good on the go keep one in your car in your purse if you happen to have a purse i don't have a purse but you might your backpack what have you when you're out at the swap meet or flea market you want a nice healthy snack that's it veggie that's right that's it veggie proud sponsor now the not so common podcast go to that's it fruit.com enter code not common and save 10 percent off any order today on that's it veggie or that's it fruit yeah on the go you know, I want to throw a veggie in my mouth, but I don't have a an, an ear of corn near me. Well, have that's it. Black beans and corn. It's almost like you know, a, a full ear of corn. You got four grams of veggie protein. You got fiber, non-GMO, non-preservative, no fat. And hell no. There's no gluten here. No gluten. And they're all under 100 calories. You can keep that trim figure. Again, that's it, veggie bars. Go to... That's it, fruit.com. Enter code not common and save 10% on any order today. Tell them Pat sent you. That's it for this Not So Common podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean, Google Play, or wherever you listen to these podcasts. Please do that. You can rate the podcast, you can leave a comment to help give it a boost, and spread the word on your, your social media Facebook, your Instagram. Your Snapchat, your your Twitter, your MySpace, if you still have that. Let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support me and the Not So Common Podcast, please check out patreon.com slash Thanks, and I'll see you next time.